It's a joy to get to come to God's Word, to hear Him speak, and to intentionally, consciously listen, to be molded by what God says. And we get to do that now as we hear His Word. Let's once again go to Him in prayer. We will be reading from Mark chapter 1 momentarily. Let's pray. Holy Father, would you by your Spirit open our eyes, open our hearts, so that we can see the truth in your word, and would we not forget it? Would we not be like a man who sees his face in a mirror and then walks away and forgets it? Let us live in light of the truth you give to us now in your word. By your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please turn to Mark chapter 1. This will be the first of many weeks, almost certainly months, in the book of Mark. We'll be going verse by verse through this gospel. Today we'll be looking at the first three verses. Mark 1, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. I want to paint for you a ridiculous picture. You wake up, 7 o'clock in the morning, your alarm goes off. You reach over to your phone. You don't reach over to turn off your alarm, but to watch it. And you watch your alarm for a few minutes, and then you decide, I'm going to watch this alarm all day. You try to turn it off at some point, but it decides it wants to keep going. So the alarm ends up consuming your day. We realize that is entirely the wrong function of an alarm clock. An alarm clock is meant to wake you up to something else. To tell you, a new day is starting. There's something ahead of you. There are opportunities. Get out of bed and go and do something. But if if an alarm clock does not wake you up to what is ahead and tries to steal all your attention and consumes you all day, it has not served its purpose. I think we have tendencies sometimes to be alarm clocks. When we ought to be reflecting the glory of Jesus Christ, we end up trying to take that glory for ourselves. We don't point to Christ. Instead, we like to point to ourselves. We're going to look at a passage today that gives us a handful of witnesses to who Jesus is. They point to something greater than themselves. And as we begin this journey in the book of Mark, I think it's helpful for us to know a little bit about Mark. Mark was a companion of Peter. In fact, when Peter uh, was released from prison by the angel in Acts 12, he went to Mark's mom's house. And Mark's cousin was Barnabas. 
And so Mark was on some missionary journeys with Barnabas and Peter and Paul. They had some falling outs, but in the end, Peter called Mark my son. And Paul describes Mark as helpful to me in my ministry. Mark was an integral part of the missionary work of the early church, but he was not an apostle. And so as we read his his book, we're going to see there are some intimate details that only an eyewitness would know about. And Mark is probably not that eyewitness. Instead, what we find is his closeness to Peter gave him insight into much of the life of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Mark is called Peter's gospel because this is the life of Christ recorded by Mark hearing Peter's perspective. And Mark calls this book a gospel. We have a genre. If I say, what are the gospels? You know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's a genre that describes these, these books. But Mark was most likely the first and therefore was not using the word gospel in a genre sense. But instead, the word gospel he got from an Old Testament understanding of what a gospel is. And in the Old Testament, the the Hebrew counterpart means the inbreaking of God's kingly rule, the advent of his salvation, vengeance, and vindication. I think that definition from Cranfield does a great job of showing us there is good news in this proclamation that Mark is giving us. This is a declaration of something good. The word literally means good news. And so Paul, excuse me, Mark is saying, listen for the good news. And this good news is about Jesus Christ. Our main point for today is that Jesus is the good news. I understand that can sound simple. But there is no better first point on which to build a church. The church is built on Jesus Christ as the good news, and so Christ Presbyterian Church will be built on the fact that Jesus Christ is the good news. And we'll explore that today from Mark verses 1, 2, and 3. We have witnesses, these alarm clocks here, going off in Mark 1, 2, and 3. We have five. There are five witnesses, so if you're taking notes, they are the beginning, the wilderness, John the Baptist, Old Testament prophecies, and then Mark's story. I'll go back over those as we go through this. But these are the witnesses. We'll start with the beginning. Mark starts his gospel with the beginning of the gospel. Now, his book is the news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. So yes, the beginning means this is the beginning of his book. And verses 1 through 13 especially are the beginning, focusing in on the preparation for ministry and what John the Baptist did. But that word beginning, if you start a book with beginning in a Jewish culture, what's going to come to mind? But Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. And in John, he does quite the same thing. But more explicitly, he says, in the beginning was the word as he starts the story of Jesus Christ. So Mark is telling us, listen, this story started a long time ago at the very beginning. This is a story of cosmic power and cosmic proportions. This is not just another man. 
This is good news about a great Savior. In Genesis 1, Jesus created. In Mark 1, marks the beginning of Jesus' recreation of his people, the new life that he gives. And so this witness of the beginning sets our expectations up as we read the book of Mark to be looking for life. Look for a grand being who is greater than just humanity. The second witness to who Jesus is, is the wilderness. Seems a little bit um, counterintuitive. When we hear wilderness, we think discomfort, we think trials, we think difficulties. But also in the Jewish understanding, the people would have remembered it is in the wilderness that God had just freed his people from slavery, where he takes them to Mount Sinai and speaks to them, gives them his word. He enters into this relationship with them and they learn to trust their God in the wilderness. He's with them in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. The wilderness for Israel is a place of God's provision and his protection, as difficult as it may be. And in Hosea... Israel is wayward. Israel is a prostitute. And God goes and seeks Israel, draws her to the wilderness, and there speaks tenderly to her. The wilderness is a place of restoration. And so now Mark is setting up the scene. This is a grand cosmic story that has roots before time. And this is a story of revival, a story of restoration. Now our expectations are set with those first two witnesses and they both point to the fact, as we will see, that Jesus is that good news. Let's not get stuck on these. Let's keep going to what they point us to. The third witness is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus as Lord. John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus as Lord. The Old Testament sets up an expectation for an Elijah, a new prophet, who's going to come and prepare the way. Some understood that to be preparation for the Messiah, who is not necessarily divine, and some understood him to be the preparation for the final day of the Lord, God's presence coming among his people. John the Baptist is the one, the Elijah, who came and is preparing the way. The quote that Mark uses referring to John the Baptist in verses 2 and 3 comes from chapters that emphasize that the end is near. These passages emphasize that the the Elijah, the messenger, is going to come and is going to warn you that the end is coming. The day of the Lord is here, which is an indication that God's presence is among his people. He's coming in judgment on the world. And in Jesus Christ, John the Baptist prepared the way for the Messiah, and John the Baptist prepared the way for God to come among his people. So John the Baptist's role here is he is declaring Jesus Christ to be Lord. You see the, uh, verse 3, prepare the way of the Lord. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, that is the name Yahweh. That is the name of God. And so John the Baptist is preparing the way for Yahweh. To come into the world. Jesus is the good news. 
John the Baptist knew his position. He knew his role. He wasn't flawless. He had doubts. But he knew that he was an alarm clock to bring attention to the coming of something greater than he was. He didn't try to steal the attention. He says, just a few verses later here in verse 7, he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And the Gospel of John tells us John the Baptist's succinct statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist is another witness that Jesus is the good news. Our fourth witness is the Old Testament prophecies, which we see here in verses 2 and 3. And these Old Testament prophecies bear witness to Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus as the Messiah. And Mark also, right off the bat in verse 1, calls Jesus Christ. That word Christ is the same word as Messiah. So off the bat, we know that we're looking at the description of Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Messiah does not necessarily imply divinity by an Old Testament understanding, but it is, it does bear witness to a ruler who will come and reign in Israel. And Mark introduces this quotation with, it is written, as it is written. Now, that is a phrase of authority. This is Mark's way of saying, this is not new. This is rooted in what God has been doing all along. This goes back to the beginning. God has promised this. Listen to this. We have the fulfillment at hand. And Mark quotes mostly from Isaiah. He says it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah is kind of the representative for the um, combination of verses here from Malachi and Exodus and Isaiah. But here we see the expectation that there is one coming who needs to be, his path ought to be prepared for him. There is one coming from Bethlehem, we find in the prophets. There is one who's from the the line of David, who's going to come, he's going to rule. And God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And in this passage, when God says that, he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. So here we start to see that the Messiah actually is the Son of God. And so this messianic concept, Mark is making sure he's highlighting this Messiah is the Son of God. There is some divinity implied and about to be explicitly stated. This Messiah is ruler in Israel. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. And he comes to establish the kingdom of God. This is not the kingdom that the Jewish uh, nation was hoping for. They're hoping for a military kingdom. They wanted to get the Romans off their backs. They wanted a, uh, a worldly king. But the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, came and fulfilled every expectation of that Old Testament Messiah. And he came to endure the cross to conquer sin and death, the real enemies, to to be the king of God's kingdom, loving his people to the very end. This concept of Christ is central to the book of Mark because in chapter 8, Peter says, makes the famous confession, you are the Christ, 
And that confession is the turning point of the book. Up till then is part one, after that is part two. Peter's confession is central to what Mark is getting at. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And so these Old Testament prophecies, Mark is reminding us of them to tell us, look for something great that is at hand. I'm about to tell you. This is just the beginning. Keep reading. Jesus is the good news. So let's look at the last witness. The last witness is Mark's story. Now, I'm not going to make you listen to me read the whole book of Mark. We will get there, but not tonight. Instead, what I'd like to do is give you an image of what Mark, this theology that Mark is developing of who Jesus is. And it revolves around the title, Son of God. Messiah is central and Son of God is central. And that's why Mark, right off the bat, calls this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, the title Son of God, as we mentioned, is connected with the Messiah in Old Testament. But as the gospel writers use it, to be called the Son of God is far more than just a human title. This is getting at an eternal reality. In Mark, the name comes up frequently. The first one to call Jesus the Son of God is the Father himself. At his baptism, he says, this is my beloved Son. In that relationship, we see that there is an intimate knowledge the Son has of the Father and the Father has of the Son. There is a relationship there from before time. This is an exclusive knowledge within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is a oneness with God that the Son has. And dare I say, this is a shared divine nature. The next ones to call him the Son of God are the demons. Because they can see his supernatural power. They know who he is and they are terrified. Son of God is more than just a human title. And then Jesus finally before the high priest's council implicitly confirms that he is the Son of God. This is a divine title, Son of God. This is, as the Nicene Creed The Son who was begotten from His Father before all worlds. God from God. Light from light. Very God from very God. Begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. This is the Son of God that we're talking about. This is the Son of God that Mark is introducing us to. Jesus is the good news of this book. So as we enter into the story of Mark, what we're going to see is that we have learned a lot right now in these three verses that the characters in the story take 16 chapters to understand. And in the end, some of them don't even get it. When we start in verse 14, all these things that Mark tells us about Jesus seem to be unknown to the oblivious characters. And so we have a snapshot as we go through the book of Mark. We have a peek behind the curtain to see what Mark is getting at, to see what Mark is building. He's building a case little by little to show the people who Jesus is as Jesus hides his identity at times and as he makes himself known at other times very carefully waiting for the moment to declare the kingdom and the good news of this salvation. It's interesting that throughout the book there's a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus is. The religious leaders are the ones who you think would get it off the bat. 
They should. They know the scriptures. They know these prophecies we just looked at. But they're the ones who don't understand. And then you have the disciples. Yes, Peter confesses, you are the Christ. And then turns around and argues about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And then denies Christ three times. In the end, he gets it. But it takes some time. Little by little, more about Jesus is revealed as he goes from Galilee to Jerusalem to the cross in this story. This unfolding secret. And as the readers, we know the whole time, no matter the obstacles, no matter the misunderstanding, no matter the mockery, even when the grave held him until the third day, we know he's the Christ. We know he's the Son of God. We know he's Lord. We know he's the good news. And so we wait with hope for that resurrection and that ascension that surely comes. But it is throughout the book that the most unlikely people figure out who Jesus is. It's not the ones you'd expect, it's the outcast, it's the tax collectors, it's the unclean, the Gentiles, the Syrophoenician woman, the Roman centurion. These are the ones who shouldn't get it. And they get it. They see that Jesus is the good news. This gives me hope. This gives me hope that we have a God who works and opens eyes. Makes me grateful that I can say with the Roman centurion, truly this man was the son of God. Because of my own strength, I'm not going to get that. As the Roman centurion says, this man was the son of God. He saw that temple curtain torn in two. He saw the way Jesus died and he said, this is God. He got it. There's a glorious victory as the one who was perfect died on that cross and took on your sin and my sin, took on the punishment we deserved. It looked like an obstacle. It looked like once again who Jesus was was not going to be declared, yet on the third day he rose. And that victory is what Mark points us to. That victory is the good news of Jesus. This is the salvation that was expected from the beginning. This was the salvation promised in the prophets. This was the Lord proclaimed by John the Baptist. This is the Christ that Mark highlights and nothing can destroy his victory. So what does this mean? Jesus is the good news. That means nothing else is the good news. We have such a tendency as people to try to find good news somewhere else. We try to look to ourselves. We try to look to our understanding. We try to look to our accomplishments. We think that that standard of living is what's going to fulfill us. We're getting out of this pain is what's going to fulfill us. Those are not good news. They will fail you. They will let you down. Only Jesus is the good news. At the end, the way Mark wraps up his gospel, or the, the way he wraps up some of these stories throughout the gospel, and then again at the end, is asking us readers to figure out, are we like the scribes and the Pharisees with our moralism? Is that our gospel? Are we the ones who can't see because we're so blinded by the way that we think that we're right? There's a problem there because that foundation, the foundation of that gospel, 
is a crumbling, finite, sinful person and their abilities to keep the law. Or there's another option. We could be like the rich young man who thought that maybe following Jesus would be compatible with his love of his money. It's never quite resolved. What happens? Well, let's, let's ask ourselves, will, be, will we be the ones who forsake all of our riches and give it to the poor and follow Jesus? And if we're talking about that prosperity gospel of health and wealth, it turns what Jesus did into, oh, I, I like J.R.R. Tolkien's phrase, um, makes Jesus a conjurer of cheap tricks. I can give you some money, I can make you comfortable, I can give you some wealth if you follow Jesus. That is not the gospel. That is not the good news of the book of Mark. Or we can be the unclean. We can be weak. We can be needy. We can be the outcast. We can be the ones who should not get it, who Jesus shows himself to. We can be the ones who look to Jesus, who see that he is the one gospel, that there is no story greater than Jesus Christ, the God-man, the king of creation, lovingly sacrificed for his people. You will not find a story with more power than that. There's nothing worth dedicating your life to more than this good news. Go, sell all that you have and buy this. Give all that you have to the poor and follow this Jesus. Christians, our job is to bear witness. To not make it about ourselves. Let's be alarm clocks that wake people up to the truth of this great salvation that is not about us at all. Let's use our words intentionally. Let's talk about this gospel. We don't need to be afraid to speak the truth of Jesus. And then let's let our lives accent that and support that. Let's tell people about this good news. If he is the good news, we have to speak it. And if you are beaten down and worn out, remember that Jesus is good news. He is the one who comes to the outcast. He is the one who can be known by the unlovable. He is the one who will conquer any challenge in your heart and in your life and be the hope that you long for. And if you don't know Christ, I hope you can identify what gospel you are believing and see that compared to Jesus, it pales in comparison. See Jesus Christ as Mark encourages his readers to do. He exalts Christ story after story after story, and I am excited to get to dig in and to see who Jesus is with every passing story. Because this is the good news that is so much greater than any of the lies that the world is trying to slip into our thinking, that they're trying to capture us with. We have a story that gives us meaning, identity, hope, peace, fellowship, and growth to anyone who looks to Christ. How freeing it is. How much peace there is for the one who has turned to this good news, has turned their eyes upon Jesus. Looked full in his wonderful face. And all these false gospels grow strangely dim. 
in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus is the good news. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for telling us this news, for preserving your word that we might hear about Jesus, that we might believe in him, and in believing, have life in his name. Would this good news be all that we are about? And would we look for nothing under heaven to satisfy the longings of our being? We thank you that you have been doing this from the beginning and you will not let your people go. Let that encourage us and give us hope as we worship you today and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.